There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Hey everyone, we've been sharing a few of the best of episodes of Wild over the last couple of weeks. And this one that was recorded, gosh, maybe nine months ago with Oliver Berkman is one of my favourite chats, or at least the theme that we talk about is one of the most thought-provoking. I got more feedback from this episode than any other that I'd done before. I think it was the shock of the reality that we only have 4,000 weeks on this planet. And it begs the question, well, what are you going to do with those 4,000 weeks or perhaps the remaining 2,000 weeks that you have? Oliver Berkman is probably my favorite anti-self-help, self-help writer. He has investigated pretty much every productivity hack, mindfulness trick, list-making system, happiness boost we've ever been fed in the past decade or two. And wonderfully, he concludes that almost none work. Take a listen to this fun conversation. I followed Oliver's column he wrote for The Guardian from his home in Brooklyn, New York for about 10 years. And I think I picked up my healthy wariness of the genre from him, or at least encouraged in my wariness of things like what I call the Stobro movement, the frothing crew of Silicon Valley types who are obsessed with stoicism at the moment and do dopamine fasts on the very technology they in fact invented. I mean, the irony astounds and my cynicism of contemporary spirituality, which I sometimes call diet spirituality or spirituality light, as in L-I-T-E, where, you know, you cherry pick the unicorns and rainbows and relaxing sound baths bits, but conveniently, and I tend to think rather self-centeredly, ignore the parts of the various traditions that entail sacrifice and being of service to the greater good. Anyway, it's been a few years, I think around about eight or nine since his last book, which came with the subtitle, by the way, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. And just as I found myself asking where Oliver Berkman might be at right now since quitting his column last year, I saw that Oliver Berkman had a new book out, which the Stobro crew have already embraced from what I can tell, which is also just a bit ironic. So the title of Oliver's new book is pretty much the wild idea I want to chew over with him for the next 45 minutes or so. It's called 4,000 Weeks. 4,000 Weeks. It's the number of weeks 
each of us has on the planet before we die. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems so short, which is precisely Oliver's brutal point. Life is short, so what are you going to do about it? Welcome to the show, Oliver. Thanks very much for inviting me. 4,000 weeks. Has there been anyone ever that you've spoken to about this who hasn't had their mind blown by how short that seems? apart from five-year-olds, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You do come across the occasional person who seems to think it's a, a, a very long amount of time. I don't know what's going on in their minds, but maybe they've already got through to this mindset of thinking, wow, you know, getting any time at all is amazing. So 4,000 weeks is is plentiful. But no, I think most people sort of have panic attacks. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, you sort of plant that wild idea on us. But then you go on to sort of point out that what we tend to do once we got a sense of our finiteness on the planet, which we walk around knowing about, we're one of the few creatures on the planet that have a sense that we are in fact going to die. We fill our lives with product activity hacks and sort of self-improvement tools. And um, it's sort of almost like we do that to kind of make ourselves feel we're making the most of that time, but somehow it doesn't work, right? Right. I think productivity hacks, time management, all that stuff, it's one manifestation, a very modern and popular one of something that people have always done, which is to respond to some sort of unconscious awareness of their mortality in in a way that tries to make it more bearable. Uh, yeah, I think it's more about not confronting the truth than it really is about making the most of time. But but you get to tell yourself certainly that you're that you're making the most of time when you're really invested in those kinds of those kinds of techniques and systems. Sure. Yeah, I mean it's kind of uh, the the contemporary distraction, right? We, I don't know, we had bread and circuses in in Roman times, and now we have productivity hacks and inbox zero and so on. But a point that I actually really love that you make in your book is that it's one of life's ironies that, you know, the more efficient you are, the more data input you tend to receive. So inbox zero generally sees you get more emails because every email you write and respond to generally begets, I think, two to three additional emails that you probably don't need if you just left it kind of hanging. And equally, if you're an efficient worker, and this really speaks to me, I've always been that person that did the sort of group activities, led the group activities, in fact, took the whole project off people and took it home, came back the next day with it completed. But when you're an efficient worker, you tend to then be given more work. It's a horrible irony, right? Right. I mean, there does seem to be this general truth. I think it goes even beyond personal time management, personal activities, right? That if you make a system more efficient, could be yourself, could be something else, in the absence of any other value, like you're not trying to do anything except just become more efficient for the sake of it, the result is that that system gets sort of more filled with with inputs, as you say, and also kind of worse quality inputs. So the work that will start to come in will be less and less work that's had to reach the, the, get over the hurdle of being the kind of thing you you really want to do. A parallel that people find helpful sometimes is uh, when they decide to add an extra lane to a, to a freeway, to a motorway because of traffic congestion, what often happens is the extra space makes that route more appealing to motorists. And so more cars come and the congestion uh, ends up being as bad as it ever was, even though they've made it a more efficient uh, system for getting cars through. And that's, yeah, I think it's the same for all kinds of, of work, email, uh, and even things that are not work, right? If you if you get really, really good at sort of 
vacuuming up all the exciting experiences that the world has to offer, right? getting through your bucket list, uh, you'll have the same you'll have the same experience that it now feels like your bucket list is ten times as long, and there's even more that you want to do, and the feeling that you're not getting through. Uh, your work, your ambitions, your goals will just you know, escalate yeah, infinitely. I've got, I've got a visual of um, Paul Hogan painting the Harbour Bridge. You know, it's kind of a bit of a myth in Australia because he worked before becoming a comedian and Crocodile Dundee. He worked painting the Harbour Bridge and, of course, as soon as he got to the end, he then had to go back and start again. It's sort of one of those one of those stories. But I think, you know, it, it's funny because we talk about it as a contemporary thing. We've always had distractions from the discomfort of the awareness of our mortality, right? And I think you refer to Heidegger, Martin Heidegger's way of referring to it as finitude or finitude. I can never pronounce it. Is it finitude? He makes up all these words. I mean, finitude is a translation. Finitude is not one of his inventions, but it's a pretty weird word. In On the audiobook of my book, I say finitude, so I really hope that's how it's pronounced. Let's stick with that. <laughs> uh, look, as, as, as we all know with Heidegger, you can, you can take your own interpretation or translation because he makes so many of his words up. But, yeah, as we became aware of that, I mean, you've pinpointed this um, down to sort of the rise of capitalism or at least the Industrial Revolution when time became something that could be commodified. Time became something that you used up, you could save, you could pay someone for, you could get paid for. And so... Prior to that, time was just something we passed through or passed through us. At the same time, we basically dropped off the idea of God. There's the death of God. And um, so we stopped believing in an afterlife. And those two factors meant that our sense of time running out and that we had to speed everything up and get productive really kind of cranked up. And it sort of strikes me that this idea of trying to live life and use up all this time in a productive way has a run-up vibe. It's kind of like we're preparing for something. It's like a dress rehearsal. And that would fit if we believed in an afterlife. But today we don't. And so what are we, what are we actually doing the dress rehearsal for? What are we doing all these productive things? What are we saving all this time for? Right. It's such a good question. I mean, I don't think that this is completely new with industrialization or with capitalism. I think that if you look back at the writings of some ancient Roman and Greek philosophers, you can see this understanding of time and this worry that time is running out, that you need to use it better, that um, that it's not good enough to just sort of exist in time. But it's definitely true that this gets sort of hyper-charged by capitalism, that capitalism has this effect of trying to utilise and instrumentalise everything it comes into contact with. And one of those things is is time, you know, human resources, the, the stuff that we do, our work in time, you know, that's something that, that capitalism naturally wants to instrumentalize and make the most out of. I think that allies with this psychological urge that, again, we've always had, but that is only getting more and more intense with the development of uh, technology and, and various other factors to feel like we might not have to die, that we might not have to face our mortality. And that, that I think, manifests in this desire to sort of get in control of time. I think the argument in my book, one of them, is that that feeling that I think lots of us know of feeling like we're almost on top of things, we've almost got our lives in working order, we've almost got everything sorted out and we're in a great position, but we're not quite there yet. We need to sort of get a bit more efficient and be a bit more disciplined about answering email, whatever it might be. All of those, I think, are versions of this desire to sort of 
break out of the reality that we're actually in with regard to time to this kind of position on top of it or out front of it or some some metaphor like that where we're sort of more in control of life than a human ever could be because actually what happens with human life is that time always wins in the end mm-hmm. um and so yeah i don't think we have any more the feeling that the place we're going to be is 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 sort of in heaven for eternity but we still have as much as ever this this urge to not have to be imprisoned by the way reality is and so yeah we're sort of it's perverse because it sort of implies this future point where everything's going to be perfect but at the same time we don't actually intellectually believe anymore most of us in that future point where everything's going to be perfect and in the meantime taking that attitude to your present moment experience sort of systematically undermines it and means you sort of systematically don't show up for the life that you do get so yeah it's it's a it's a sort of psychological perversity that is pretty much universal in us which is generally attached to any kind of absolute discomfort and fear around our death. <laughs> we have all kind of cognitive perversities, you know, generally attached to that. So there's this idea that almost like, and then we get on top of our to-do list and get to the bottom of our bucket list and da 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 and then what? Oh, infinite leisure. I mean, <laughs> I hate leisure, Oliver. <laughs> I don't have hobbies. I downloaded a cross-stitch pattern the other day thinking I might try a hobby every sort of two years. I give it a crack, you know. You know, I, I'm a quite an efficient operator. So I've actually arrived at brief moments where I'm on top of my inbox and and all of that. And then I'm like, oh, leisure. I mean, we don't actually want to arrive at too much leisure, do we? I mean, we talk about it, but it's actually something that we also then micromanage within an inch of its life. Right. I think this is a really important point that, you know, we 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 hear and we tell ourselves so much that it's very important to slow down, to get enough sleep, to just sort of enjoy the moment that we're in, spend time in nature. And we often sort of complain that our lives don't give us enough time for it. But actually, when we do get time for it, we, by and large, as a as a civilization, uh, don't really don't really want it. Feel sort of anxious and antsy, and like we ought to be doing something more useful or constructive with our time. I think that's just the you know the how deeply entrenched this attitude is that the really important thing about time is how well you're using it for some future purpose. I don't think that's, you know, totally illegitimate. We're all doing things all the time, uh, quite rightly, that that build towards future projects and accomplishments. But if you take that attitude exclusively, and especially if you take it towards leisure, uh, yeah, it, it turns leisure into a kind of bad kind of work. Um, if the only reason you think it's important to rest is so that you can be more productive the next day rather than just to rest, um, then you sort of sapped the fundamental meaning of it out you know uh, as with everything I write about in this book like I these are personal struggles I'm not sort of uh preaching from a position of having worked it all out and this is probably the most acute example uh of that if you went back and if you go back and read about leisure in Aristotle and you know sort of ancient thinkers like that it wasn't this kind of strange little respite from the real point of life it actually sort of was the real point of life now admittedly in the case of lots of ancient philosophers, they tended to think that doing philosophy was the thing you ought to be doing with your leisure time, that there could be no higher goal. But 
you know, this this notion that we have now that it's that it's not quite really living to be stopping and being where you are and enjoying the place that you're in. I mean, it, it's so perverse when you when you phrase it like that. But I I'm absolutely one of those people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, of course, I'm trapped in the same kind of dichotomy work and leisure and we're constantly trying to find the perfect ratio right and when then we get resentful if our you know yoga quotient is eaten up by our zoom meeting quotient you know as though there's this magic ratio that we're all meant to be working to it reminds me actually of um i think every greek has a version of this but this sort of greek parable of the fisherman who you know goes out each day catches a fish comes back and and drinks tipero in the in the taverna with his mates and plays cards all day and they eat the fish together right and then it's the german it's always the german the german tourist goes well why don't you go out and catch a bunch of fish you know and well why uh-huh. would i do that oh because then you could uh, cook up a bunch of fish and get paid for it and well why would i do that <laughs> well because then you could buy a boat and it goes on. You could then get staff who can catch even more fish and then, you know, it becomes more and more productive. And he, eventually he's like, and why would I do that? And he goes, oh, so that you can come back and play cards and drink Tipperow in the right. taverna with your mate, you know. <laughs> and so yeah. it, it always cuts straight through to the insanity of the way that we compartmentalise leisure and work and productivity. I guess one of the things that trying to clear the deck you know, and get to inbox zero, that sort of absolute fascination and obsession with it eventually stops us from being able to prioritise what actually matters to us. I think that's what a lot of our distraction is from. We can say it's we're distracting ourselves from the fear of death, but really behind that is distracting ourselves from what really matters in our 4,000 weeks. Would that be something you subscribe to? Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost the same point expressed in an interestingly different way, right? I mean, the thing that really has struck me, uh, both from personal experience and from, you know, the research that I did for this book, is that it's not a coincidence that the things that we really value doing in life often feel unpleasant, intimidating, they trigger discomfort or uncertainty and security. So, and the reason for that is, you know, we ultimately is that we have this limited amount of time. We want to do certain things with it that count for us. And that makes the stakes quite high. Um, if you've decided that you're going to go off on a career path that involves something that, you know, some project that you're not certain you can carry off. Uh, if you want to have a conversation with your spouse that you know you need to have and that is all part of deepening your relationship but it's going to leave you feeling emotionally vulnerable and it might lead to an argument you can't control how it goes or a million other examples these things matter and they make you uncomfortable and they make you uncomfortable because they matter because the stakes are high and you're being mm. put into contact with your, your the limitate you're you're at your edge you know it's like you, you you're not fully in control and confident about how it's going um and in that context, of course, it feels better to uh, scroll through social media on your phone, to sort of just clear out your inbox, to um, you know reorganize the items on your desk, on your desk, do the filing, you know, wh- whatever. All of these things are areas where you are sort of much more confidently in control. You're the master of your domain. You can you can make it all feel good, you know. And, Anyone who does sort of creative work uh, very often find, you know, you find that at the 
most intense times in that process, you end up with an extremely clean house and an extremely clean kitchen because like that it's just much more comforting to do that than to than to work on the thing. It's all the same reason. It's it's all that we have these this opportunity, this brief opportunity to do some things that matter. That makes the stakes high, and that's kind of scary. So we we often prefer, very understandably, but counterproductively, to uh, uh, to, to to instead try to um, avoid that that feeling. Yeah, yeah. Look, being productive and trying to max our time and spend it as efficiently as possible so that we can then dot, 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 freak out about having leisure time, which we then try to max and, you know, compartmentalise and hack to pieces. You've got a bunch of solutions. And I think if I was to sum it up, it's like, just kind of give up and accept you can't do everything (laughs) because that is insane. We can't do everything. You know, we write to-do lists that are way too long for a 12-hour period. And our sense of the everythingness of what we should be doing as per what the internet feeds us is absolutely impossible. So you're, you sort of go, just give up because you can't do everything. It's an insanity. Observe the, 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 the fact that it's a, there's a disconnect there and try a different approach. Yeah, absolutely. And we can totally talk about sort of specific techniques and tricks if, if you'd like. But I do mm. think that that, that notion of it, it is an admitting defeat. It's a, it's a surrender. But it's sort of the it's a surrender as a first step. So I think this is really important. Sometimes I think because of a reputation that maybe British people have for being um, sort of sardonically pessimistic about everything <laughs> in life, people may may interpret what I'm saying as like, "There's no point in any of this. Just it just all sucks. Just you know, pour yourself beer and um, forget about trying to accomplish anything significant." It's not that at all. It's the idea that we absolutely, on to some degree, have to give up this impossible quest to attain mastery over time, to become perfectly optimized, perfectly productive, perfectly capable of meeting any obligation that might be felt, any demand that might be made on us. You have to sort of crash back down to the ground on that score um, in order to start channeling your, your attention and your energy and your time into a handful of things that matter. You have to be at least somewhat okay with the idea that, out of the 20 meaningful ways you could spend or a thousand meaningful ways you could spend today, you're only going to do one of them and, and be okay with the anxiety and the discomfort and actually this kind of sense of loss that, that, that arises from that. If you're ever going to do one of them, instead of sort of jumping between them, dissipating your attention and your energy and not really making any, any progress. So it is that kind of, yeah, it's a, like a crashing back to earth because that's where you can put, one foot in front of the other and and do stuff. Uh, And I think that perspective shift, I'm not necessarily talking about a sudden epiphany, you have to completely change your life, but getting a little bit of the flavor of that in your life, that is much more important to me than any of the specific kind of methodologies that you then uh, apply for sort of organizing your to-do list or whatever. It's a vibe. It's a vibe to start right. with. It's a vibe, yeah, totally it's a vibe, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, from what I pick up, I pick up two things from that. The first is that really one of the radical things we need to do is get cool with discomfort, which is something that I talk right. about in a different context in relating to similar things, I suppose. But, you know, I think you refer to it as the superpower, that if you can get cool with discomfort, then everything else can fall into place from there and actually you can get on with having a really awesome life because you're cool with discomfort. Can you explain that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is so important and it's been so important as a learning experience in, in my life, right? We're talking here in this conversation a little bit about, you know, facing mortality and it, and it feels like something terribly dramatic and huge. And obviously, I don't think anybody ultimately totally faces up to the fact of their mortality. I certainly don't think I have managed to do so. But the way that all this sort of cashes out on a day-to-day level is a really minor level of discomfort that is easily tolerable and that nonetheless can totally subvert the course of a day, right? That the, the level of discomfort in a work project, say, that I need to feel, or certainly me, the historical me, in order to just spend the next three hours on social media instead, it's tiny. It's not, it's <laughs> not, um, we are not doing battle with the sort of a woolly mammoth. <laughs> right, exactly. Or with these kind of these kind of forces of it's not like it's not that I get to my desk every morning and confront my mortality. It's just that I get to my desk and hope that I can just accommodate this very tiny discomfort that comes from from doing stuff that counts with limited time. And yeah, I think if you can and I know that this is, uh, you know, this is very much your subject matter in, in other contexts as well, that, that like if you can just sort of become a slightly bigger emotional container for these things, that, then yeah, it really is uh, a superpower. I think it always needs, there's a little caveat that always needs to be here, which is that this isn't an argument for sort of toughing out a situation that feels totally wrong intuitively to you. You know, this is not an argument for saying like, you hate your job because it's sort of causing your soul to shrivel. So just tough that out because actually it'll be fine. Mm. That's a different kind of suffering that I think if you clue into, you can take as a prompt to make a, make a change Uh, in relationships. You know, I would never want to be the person saying that if like you get a really bad feeling from someone you're dating or something, you should just like, you should just like ignore that discomfort. That's intuition. That's very powerful source of, of sort of subliminal information and it should be listened to, but that, that sort of almost slightly petulant level of like, oh, I know this matters and I know it's the right thing to do with my morning, but I just kind of Mm. don't want to do it and would rather distract myself. It's actually so easy to to get past that. Um, We just don't realise it. And so what do you do? I know that you're the anti-self-help, self-help dude. Um, (laughs) What do you do to get past that? And I call it the sort of the cringy discomforts. You know, it's right. the cringy, I just know that I'm just being really pathetic here. And right. what do you do to get get through that? I mean, I have so many different sort of techniques. One thing I've given up on completely is this idea that I'm going to come up with like the one system that's yeah. going to work perfectly forever. Because that would actually be the, to commit the same error, I think, that, uh, that we're talking about getting past. Um, when I'm deeply in a motivational rut like that I think the most important thing that I do is to sort of totally narrow the time horizon down to like uh you know a single task uh a single five minute period you know it's this is sort of old advice in a way but like sometimes the idea of writing a piece that's going to take me four or five hours is just far too much because four or five hours how could anyone ever make such an unreasonable demand on me but but um but but five minutes to do, you know, uh, followed by five, right. Followed by five minutes break, you know, that this sort of stuff, you have to sort of, it cuts it right down. I think I read that you've actually gone back to the Pomodoro technique, or at least you've kind of gone, 
I mean, I do the same thing. I've investigated very similar hacks and tricks and so on, you know, over the years. And I sort of have this bag of things that sort of work and I bring them out every now and then and I pulse. I pulse a little bit here. I I have to mix it up and I use it according to what feels right at any given time. And I've gone back to the Pomodoro technique for anyone who's who's um, listening and doesn't know what we're talking about, do you want to describe it? And have I got it right? Are you sort of, you sort of go back to it, you flirt with it every now and then. Firstly, I'll just quickly say what the Pomodoro Technique is. It's a little bit more involved than this, but it's essentially the practice of working in 25-minute chunks called Pomodoros because the guy used a... a tomato kitchen, kitchen timer. Tomato the shape of a tomato, <laughs> yeah. Followed, followed by a five-minute break and doing that in a little batch of four, so two hours in total, 25-5, 25-5. Uh, do it again that's uh, two hours and then taking a longer break and then doing another four later in the day if you have the opportunity it's pretty arbitrary as a specific technique I think the really important thing here is the spirit that you bring to these things so in the past there was a time when I jumped on each one of these techniques as the thing that was going to be my salvation and the implication was that when I'd magically found greater reserves of self-discipline than I'd ever shown at any point in the past in my life. I was somehow going to make this the way that I did things forevermore and got to this state of being in total control. That is what I have been pretty good, I think, at broadly letting go of and unclenching from. But the specific techniques, sure. I mean, you know, it's great to give it a bit of shape and a Mm. bit of order to the day and to use these little games with yourself to, um, to motivate yourself to do things that you know you want to do in the deeper sense of wanting to do them, but might not want to do on that in that more superficial sense. Another very, very simple one uh, that I've written about is again for these kind of when you're those these times when you're you really need to get back to basics, is just to keep that kind of list where you write a single item that seems like a good thing to do now. You do it, you cross it out. You write another one beneath it, you do it, you cross it out. It's so pathetic on some level, right? Holding yourself by the hand in this in this way but all of them are just different ways of coming up with an answer to the question like what would be the next right thing to do now because even if you are the kind of person who loves to have like a weekly plan and a monthly vision and an annual you know uh, set of outcomes that you're trying to achieve all of that too is only any use in so far as it helps you answer the question what do i do right now what's yep. the next what's the next good thing to do with my time. And I think when you see it like that, the pressure comes off. You're just like, we're all just figuring out the next thing to do. And it's cool to use any system that works for you to do that. Just don't think that what you're doing is somehow laying down control over the whole of That's the next the point, year or something. That's the point, is to let go yeah. of the control and um, yeah. also not have it as another thing that you have to do and add to your to-do list. And we should also point right, out right. that the Pomodoro technique, just as one example, came about, I think, off the back of so the legendary story of Ray Bradbury when he was writing Fahrenheit, I've always forgotten, is it 389, 359, whatever it is? Now you've raised the issue, I can't remember. Um, oh, you're Googling it? What have we got there? Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit. 451. 451. Yeah, all right. So go. when he was writing it in some New York library, he used to go down to the basement and you could hire the typewriter for 25 minutes at a time and he had to put a quarter or a dime on top of the, the typewriter and you'd frantically write whatever it is that you could and then he'd have to sort of get up and wander for five minutes until the next typewriter became available. So that technique became the Pomodoro technique because they figured if it worked for him, it could work for anyone. But of course, 
He was forced into that, right? We have got the luxury, and maybe this is another irony, of having created all this leisure time or time in which we can do these things like, I don't know, write a report or write a book, and we've got to create our boundaries. We've got to create, you know, stop gaps against Twitter and, you know, this influx of data and distractions. And so we've got to go easy on ourselves in, in that respect as well. Like it's another job that we do have to do and it is a state of flux and we've got to find the little sweet thing that can work for the moment without getting too rigidly attached. We've got to go easy on ourselves because it's not like it was back in Ray Bradbury times. No, and I actually think, you know, no offence to Ray Bradbury and look, if it works for somebody and anything that helps people achieve the things that they care about, I don't want to be the person to put them off it. To me, that anecdote, which, yeah, it's a it's a famous one, it, it, that is really a case of um, sort of going to war with time and, and being determined to sort of force things out of, of time. And I think in its, the, the way that the creator of the modern Pomodoro technique talks about it and, and some of the other techniques that I've written about and found useful, it's the opposite. It's, it's a question of, it's a hard idea to express, but let me try. It's not about saying, okay, there is time. Time is my adversary. I will, I will eke out, you know, astonishing amounts from time in this kind of combative fight to uh, cram stuff in. It's more about, it's almost about saying, look, the, the, on some level, the day is already divided into 25 minute periods with five minute gaps, right? You can think of a day as that already. It's just there. Time is just this thing. It's just implacable. It doesn't affect, it doesn't change the, when you change our attitude towards it. And so really it's just a question of like, how will we place activities into this, this portion of time that we've been given? Doesn't need to be a fight. Doesn't need to be uh, trying to sort of get one up on time or get one over on time or win a battle with time. It's just like you have this little plot of land today and there are, you can only do a tiny number of things with it as compared to the number of things you can think of or that you might feel pressured to do. And it's just a question of sort of judiciously curating a few activities for that mm. time in the full knowledge also that you're not even in charge and that, you know, half the interruptions that come your way, you won't be able to do anything about. And that's fine too. It's It, it can be very peaceful, I think. It doesn't need to be that kind of like uh, war war with time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I guess the second thing I was going to bring up we're talking about discomfort, but the other thing that occurred to me when you were talking about the idea of just 
letting go of this attachment to to conquering your to-do list and so on is the peacefulness. I was sitting there with my mind going, you know, my sort of listener mind, you know, listeners at home listening to this going, but why would I want to give up? Because that sounds pretty uncomfortable and what's there to What's there to gain from giving up on this idea of getting through your to-do list? Because for some people, the idea of getting through the to-do list, even if it's constantly kind of growing, kind of is not that bad. It gives structure and all that kind of thing. So for you, Oliver, what is what what is the benefits of just giving up? Well, I mean, I'll say it again that I don't think that, you know, if if, if it isn't a problem for you, don't let me make it a problem for no. you. But, but, but at the same time, it's a giving up of a kind of futile anxiety inducing quest to achieve a certain kind of control that you can't in fact ever achieve. And it's a giving up of that in order to get both peace of mind and the the time and the attention and the energy to accomplish lots of cool stuff. So my argument is that there isn't actually a zero sum choice here, right? It isn't like, it isn't a question of, am I going to be a relaxed person? Or am I going to be a high achieving person? Uh, I mean, this is totally my personal struggle too, but it is that ultimately you don't have to choose between these things. You, you, you do have to surrender this idea of becoming a sort of perfectly productive, infinitely capable, uh, unlimited uh, person. But what you get in return for that is this dropping back down into life where it's a peaceful way to be, but it's a peaceful way to go about yeah. Making a difference, so accomplishing things, getting you know, uh, doing the creative projects that you that you've always wanted to do, going to the places that you've always wanted to see. I, I have a phrase, and it's do both. Like, um, you know, I, I talk about it in terms of my anxiety. I kept on thinking I needed to get on top of my anxiety to be able to then enjoy life, to be able to then, um, you know, feel the joy that I was seeking, and I just one day woke up, and it was something that His Holiness the Dalai Lama told me which was something quite opportune because you pay attention, don't you, when the Dalai Lama tells you something. But um, I just figured I could be anxious and enjoy my life and have a good life. And so, so I think that's what you're saying, isn't it? Like we have this fear of time passing us by and we can try to be productive and we can try to get a lot done and we can also struggle with leisure and we can enjoy it. And we can actually find it wonderful and fruitful and get all the stuff that we're kind of hoping we'll get one day down the track when we get to the bottom of our to-do list. We can have it now. I think that's the point, right? Absolutely. And that sort of brings in an important aspect of this, which is, again, yes, don't interpret what I'm saying as you've got to get to this place where you feel totally peaceful about time and you're accomplishing wonderful things. Like the anxiety that we're talking about here, that you can be in a constant state of letting go of that's also something that it's totally fine to feel, right? I think it's it's not going to, it, it, it's all to do with becoming more conscious of what you're feeling, your situation in life, the things that matter to you. And it's almost less about getting to some stage where the so-called bad parts of that have been eliminated. There's a quote, um, which I reference in the book and come back to again and again from a French poet called uh, Christian Bobin, who says, there's a wonderful line where he says, I'll try and get it right. I was peeling a red apple from the garden when I, when I suddenly realized that life would only ever give me a series of wonderfully insoluble problems. At that thought, a notion of immense peace entered my heart or something <laughs> like that. I'm yeah. not getting it quite right, but like, like 
this idea that you have to first power through to some particular phase of life where there aren't a certain kind of problem before you can really, uh, you know, live. That's the only problem. The, 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 exactly. The, 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 the idea that you're going to ever get there. Yeah. I think you've said in your book, and I think you're quoting somebody else, is that, and I really liked it, is um, develop a taste for having problems. And then you're kind of right. set. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, obviously there are bad problems. Obviously there are problems that mm. you should try to resolve, get out of, whatever. But like the sheer fact of something being a problem is really just a synonym for like having something to do in life, right? There yeah. are things you need to do. And if you didn't have anything at all to do, that would be a bad thing. Well, I've got affair. a phrase um, called choose the wobbliest table at the cafe because I have this thing where I get really annoyed if I sit down and the one table I decide to sit at is wobbly and then, of course, you know, I'm in a draft and the, the music is too loud and then the coffee comes and it's cold and it's all ruined. And so I had this thing, well, I'll just choose the grimmest option. I've developed a taste for grim and from there things can only get better. I think it's a great philosophy for life. And that brings me to a, a, a another wisdom that I think cuts through to what your the nuance point that you make in the book. And it's kind of around the idea of actually embracing JOMO or the joy of missing out. We all know the fear of missing out and I think that that just plagues at us more so in this Current, these current times than ever before. But explain how the joy of missing out can actually bring us to this point that you're making about being able to simultaneously let go but also be in the world with the right priorities. I mean, the thing I find so fascinating when you really think about the idea of the fear of missing out is like implicit in that idea is that it might be possible not to miss out. Implicit in that <laughs> yes. idea is that like, you're a bit worried that there might be some things you won't have time to do, some people you won't get have time to get to know, some places you won't get to see. And it's like, yeah, yeah. No, there definitely are going to be <laughs> a very large number of those because that's just the situation of being a finite human in a in a world of infinite, effectively infinite possibilities and having a mind that enables you to come up with, uh, you know, far more uh, ambitions or uh felt obligations than you could ever actually uh, address. So it's really intrinsic to this notion that I'm, that I'm sort of keep coming back to of sort of dropping back down into an understanding of what's real, which is that, yeah, you get a tiny little portion of, of opportunity to do things and see what the world has to offer and get to know people. And so that's really the first step I think in, in, uh, coming to terms with with FOMO and the, the sort of JOMO part of this is to see that because of this because every decision to do anything with an hour or a day or a lifetime is by definition a decision not to do uh you know potentially millions of other things instead many of which would have been really great and valuable because of that the choices that you do make become sort of invested with a greater level of of meaning and importance uh, because you are, it's a sort of an affirmation. You're saying, you know, I, I, I recognize that I can't do everything or anything close to everything. And I choose to do this. It's almost like the fact that we get to choose things. That's the gift. I, I'm reminded of the Greek God. I think he's called the Prince of Troy or Tithemus. And he's immortal like all the gods and he can live forever. And he becomes aware that none of his choices matter. What matters when you can make all the choices in the world for the rest of your life because it goes forever? 
And so yeah. he petitions to the gods to become mortal so that he has a finite time in which to make concerted choices. And um, he, he chose to be mortal for that reason. And that's right. something that is so hard to grasp, but when you do think of an infinite time of infinite choices, um, none of them matter, do they? It's only matters right. you when, do, you yeah. make the, you, yeah. when you select the one thing. Right. I think of this in terms of stakes, right? You don't want the stakes to be nothing to, to the to the choices you face in the in the day. You don't want the answer to the question, should I live in this country or that country? Should I pursue this passion or this other one to be like, who cares? It doesn't matter because you can just do the other one next century or next millennium, right? You, 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 this would not be a happy place to be in. The fact that the stakes are high because time is limited, ultimately, for all the pain and, and and loss that that entails, it's what gives any of this any meaning. And I think another way that sometimes people find it helpful to think about this is uh, when we talk about JOMO and, and the sort of this kind of affirmation of choosing one thing precisely because you have to choose something, it, it it's a little bit like, well, what if you stopped thinking about the the activities of your life or the potential activities in your life as a as a to-do list that you have to get through or a bucket list you have to get through and more like um more like a menu right i mean more like something where you you would never expect in the first place you go into a restaurant look at the menu there's there's no felt pressure to for most people anyway i would assume to like try everything that is on the menu or to sit there, you know, eating every dish until you're feeling like ready to die know. because you've... I'm probably one of those people, unfortunately. <laughs> I've got I've got an appetite that large. But, um, yes, I get your point. I guess also, you know, also it depends, on the, it depends on the restaurant, right? The basic spirit we bring to a menu is like, oh, look, there's all these options and I'm going to pick one and picking one is going to be the pleasurable thing. It's going to be, you know, that's going to be how I enjoy this experience. And and I think, you know, that attitude to life is something that it's perfectly possible to, 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 to take. And again, not in the spirit of saying, I've figured out which was the most important thing and I've said no to all the meaningless ones and I've chosen the most meaningful one, but actually in the spirit of, you know what, there are 300 things I could have done with this hour and they would all have been legitimately meaningful and maybe the one I'm doing is not intrinsically better than the others. Maybe sort of spending the afternoon playing with my son, volunteering at a local, you know, uh, soup kitchen, mm. writing, working on a novel. Uh, you know, it's not that one of these is intrinsically more important to do with life than another of them. It's just that, it's just that like all these things matter and uh, you know, you have to go with your, your gut and your intuition freed from this panicky thought that there was an absolutely right answer and freed from this thought that you might ever find a sneaky way to get to do them all uh, as much as you, uh, to the degree that you would like to do them all. Yeah, and the paradox of choice, I think Sheena Ainga, who was one of the original MIT researchers on all of that paradox of choice theory, she found that people who were in arranged marriages were often way happier in their relationship several years down the track than those who did in love marriages because their choices were narrowed. And then what happened is because the choice was just made, they then be, were able to, it then became their favoured choice. The love grew from the fact that they'd um, been gifted this opportunity. And I think that's something that I picked up 
in what you were saying in your or writing about in your book, that the joy of missing out comes down to sometimes just being aware that we got to make a choice, you know, and I think we get inundated with so much data these days, we lose, I suppose, the curiosity, the fascination, the sense of exploration and adventure as to, wow, let's see if this is the great choice. Let's see what can become of this choice. And curiosity, I think, is something that I explore in another episode with another guest, is a wonderful salve for anyone who gets anxiety around pretty much anything. Well, just find a curious experiment. Let's just see what happens. And invariably, when you make a choice in a finite period of time, it becomes the wonderful thing because you chose it. I think that's totally true. I think it's, um, you know, it's it's a little dicey, isn't it? Because there are competing values when it comes specifically to the arranged marriage case. You can certainly imagine a lot of arguments against that and the mm. importance of the free the importance of a greater degree of freedom for people to make their choices but i think there's there's probably some happy medium where some some balance where in an ideal world you know we would somehow have limited choices <laughs> a pool of potential partners that was maybe like you know maybe there were 30 people that you ever found out about or 20 people that you ever found out about i mean and and you know it's been said before like if we all grew up on a small village yeah, you'd probably just choose one and be and be happy rather than being constantly tormented by this thought of of missing out, mm. right? And I think the curiosity thing, yeah. I mean, an, another piece, another thing from like relationship science that they've shown over and over again is that like what really makes two people compatible is the willingness to try to put some effort into being compatible. It isn't a sort of question of listing which boxes you check on a on a list of your interests mm. or your or your personality traits or or anything like that. So yeah, I think curiosity is totally the 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 stance that 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 says like okay i'm i'm here right now and let's see where let's see where this goes and it's antithetical to that kind of okay i'm here right now and i've got to get into a position of full knowledge and control over how this stuff is going to unfold it's uh, it's 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 a good way of expressing the mm. the antidote the antidote to that yeah which brings me to another little sort of visual that you use in your book to get um, people understanding what you're on about here is, uh, I think it's to treat your to read pile. We all have one. Mine's kind of in tabs on my computer screen, um, like a river, not a bucket. Explain that one. This is just the idea that you know we we, I think we often define. We may not use this metaphor, of course, but we often define all sorts of. Um, real or implicit lists in our lives, lists of things to do, lists of obligations to meet, lists of things to read as something that you have to get to the end of, right? It's like it's a bucket that you have to empty. It's uh, the to read pile is sitting there and somewhere in your brain, you're thinking, I've got to get to the end of it, or I'm going to come up with a technique someday soon or become the kind of person tomorrow, I'm going to wake up and be the kind of person who always gets to the, the end of it. You can think of that as applied to an inbox. You could think about it as sort of the repairs that need doing to a house or even just like uh obligations that you feel from members of your extended family you know there's all sorts of different ways that you can think of things as as things that you have to get to the bottom of and keep getting to the bottom of and the alternative uh where possible yeah is to think of them as rivers you don't think about trying to empty a river you think of it as something that flows past you and you get to sort of pick interesting or worthwhile things 
from it. Imagine those books and articles that you need to read or want to read flowing past you and sort of picking a few and not worrying that others flow past and out of reach because that's just the situation you're in mm. as a human with, with your time. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it, you know, not to define too many things in your life as, as buckets. Maybe there is a kind of list of most important priorities that you do want to treat as something that does have to be finished. But, but if you treat all the potential uh, collections of potential to do's in your life as that you're just, it's just a recipe for never getting there and never feeling like you're anywhere close. I, I also like, I think you've actually used this in your book as an example, the idea of, you know, if you don't, you don't walk into the British Library or the, the New York Library and get overwhelmed by this sense that, oh, my God, I've walked in here and now I've got to read every single book in here. Um, instead, and again, it goes back to the curiosity thing, I will go to the New York Library and it's a lovely place, or any library really, and wander around right. and enjoy the atmosphere. And there's a wonderful sort of... Oh, it's a wonderful thing to do is just to go up and then curiously pull a book off a shelf and have a look at it. Not many of us do that these days. And you might do it in a bookshop as well. It's a really, I mean, so many of us have been locked down for so long that bookshops are such a romantic place, but they've always been a romantic right. place because you go in there, you don't go online and search for a title that someone's told you you've got to get and then you get go down this kind of vortex of other books that you're meant to read. You just go in there curiously and you might like the cover. And by the way, I should point out the cover of your book, I absolutely love. I swear I have sat on that park bench on that lake at some point in my life. Uh, you quite possibly have. It's it's in it's in New Zealand, I believe. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, quite possibly. And I I think there's a wonderful art to curiously pulling out something from the river of life and being really open to seeing what happens. And that's something yeah. that I think would appeal to people as they listen to it. And we just need to find ways to live that out as often as possible, to have as many touch points with that kind of vibe, if we go back to the vibe again, as possible. How do you do it, Oliver? What are some things that you are doing? I mean, you've moved from Brooklyn to some Dales or Dells or something <laughs> in the UK. Um, is that part of it? Well, it's really it's, it's, it's an opportunity to see if I can sort of walk the talk. We're actually here in the North York Moors in the north of England, um, at least for now, for the duration of my wife's academic sabbatical. So that's what sort of enabled us to to do it. Uh, we're in this gorgeous countryside that I've always loved since I was a child. And um, I write in the book about uh, how much I love hiking as one of those ways to spend time that is not totally focused on what you're getting out of it or where you're getting in the future. Uh, but for the for, for the for the sort of pleasure and the experience of being in that time itself. So, you know, we've only been here a couple of weeks and we're still unpacking boxes and things. So it remains to be seen if uh if I uh if I do this. I, I think I will. I think the sort of the 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 nearbyness of that is gonna make it almost difficult uh to, to not to do. One of the approaches that I use in other contexts and that I fully intend to use here too is is just when thinking about work to 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 the extent possible to think in terms of blocks of time to think first about time in the following sense to 
to sort of put some boundaries around the time that I propose to work for and then sort of make what needs to happen, what is most important fit within that time, as opposed to getting up in the morning and saying, I need to get through the following things until I allow myself to rest. So for example, am I going to be able to maybe uh, work one day less per week here by sort of nominating the day in advance? Will I find that, uh, this is certainly ambition, an ambition I have, will I find that the work can sort of condense to fit the time available as a in the sort of um, opposite of Parkinson's law, the famous observation that work expands to fill the time available. I think my experience so far has been, not just here, but you know, in life in general, is that that is true. And that if you place some fairly firm boundaries around the time that you're willing to work, another example is like a stopping point in the day. If you say, okay, I don't work past 6pm, say, except in very extraordinary uh, circumstances, you find that actually the things that you have to do sort of arrange themselves in such a way that you that you normally can pretty well be stopped but be done by by 6 p.m it's not perfect uh doesn't work perfectly but it's just that sense of like okay i'm not going to make room for an infinite amount of work if i worked for 24 hours a day seven days a week i would be able to come up with things to fill that time with you know and if i had 28 hours a day i would still be able to come up with things to fill that time with so and you still won't get them all done right so clearly the answer here is not to try to get to the end of anything any lists that i can imagine in my head the answer is to say okay you have this amount of time and then you're stopping because there are other incredibly important and wonderful and enjoyable and meaningful things to do around here and uh you know see how that goes. Yeah, so if I was to sum things up, in many ways it's about putting up boundaries and also having a very square look at the insanity of the proposition that we can get infinite things done in a finite world and time period. And really that requires just stopping and looking at things squarely from time to time. Right, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things I hope to be doing with this book, you know, is just, it's the intellectual understanding that comes first, just like, oh, this is a ridiculous situation. Now, it doesn't, it yeah. doesn't follow automatically from that, that you won't still be tormented by that situation or have the felt emotional need to uh, comply with that situation. That That's a more gradual thing and a more imperfect thing. But like, just to start with, let's not be under any illusions that this is a, a sane set of demands that are, that are placed on us in the modern world. Yeah. That's right. Look, as one final point, and I do tend to bring everything back to this kind of elephant in the room because if if we're going to talk realities that are sitting squarely in front of us, the climate crisis um, and the, the finitude, was it finitude, of humanity. I mean, I reckon we could probably put um, a number of weeks to how long we may have as a species on the planet um, in the face of the climate crisis. And I'm just wondering if some of this is amping up, this sense of having less time at an individual level is becoming heightened with the background sense that humanity also has a finite time. How, how are you seeing this play out? I know you do address it briefly in your book. Um, is this something that plays at you? And if so, what's a wisdom that you could leave us with, with this idea that we're becoming aware of the finiteness of humanity? I mean, I think it definitely does provide a sort of extra weight and dimension to what we're 
talking about here. There's a sort of separate debate that I might want to have about whether it is quite right to think about the climate crisis as a sort of extinction level event. It's clearly immensely serious, but there's some, there's some debate about whether really thinking about it in those specific terms is the most, is the most accurate. I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that it is a reminder of is not only our finitude and the finitude of generations, uh, to come in the future, but but the fact that from this finite position, we do have some kind of impact, we do have some kind of responsibility that reaches outside of our lives. And it's important, I think, to not define the meaningfulness of life entirely in terms that you're going to see realized in your own lifetime, that is entirely about you and your immediate family members right here, right now, to sort of carry at the same time in your mind, the sense of your own finitude, the fact that you won't be around for very long compared to uh, the sort of slow unfolding of human civilization. Uh, but that, you know, th- th- that doesn't mean that your impact or your, the, the, the meaningfulness of what you're doing has to be defined within that same time frame. And so there's actually something kind of, I think something kind of expansive and rewarding about thinking of ourselves as bit part players in this much longer drama that uh, that has gone on for many many years and will go on for for uh, many many more because it, it sort of relieves you of that notion that you've got to change the universe in the next few years or something that I think is actually somewhere in a lot of our sort of modern ideas about a meaningful life so yeah I think you know what we can certainly agree on is that human life both our own individual lives and that of the human race as a whole is incredibly fragile and precious and not to be taken lightly. And, you know, that it is no good to proceed through life on the basis that we have guaranteed unlimited time, either as individuals uh, or as a species. Yeah. And it's such an interesting and relieving and peaceful paradox that once we know that it is precious, once we know that we could lose it, you know, and in the case of our individual lives, we will lose it. That is a fact. Then we can actually find this incredible freedom. It's, again, another boundary. If we're talking boundaries, it actually enables us some freedom to fulfil our lives to that boundary. It's a little bit like when you... When you place a sort of a, a wall around something, then water is free to fill to the edges rather than just staying a sort of a dank puddle in the middle. That's sort of how I see it. And I know that you quote Pima Chodron, the American Buddhist nun, in your book at a, at a couple of junctures, but she has this great mindset that it's once we actually reach a point of absolute hopelessness, right, where we stop grasping outwards and in we could sort of refer to productivity hacks and salves that are going to come from out there somewhere. Um, we then actually experience true hope, which is a sense of ourselves, a sense of strength within ourselves, an inward uh, durability, an ability to kind of go down into discomfort and know that we can handle it. We can choose the grimace table at the cafe. <laughs> right. Um, we we are aware of the fact that we're not going to live forever. And then from there, we can choose to live with wildness and freedom and expansiveness. Absolutely. It's the it's the giving up of the fantasy that you will sometime get to a place where you have absolute security with respect to life, certainty, uh, control, in, in exchange for this sort of kind of self-trust that says, 
I don't have this control. I don't have this uh, security. But when things happen unpredictably and unexpectedly and stressfully as they will, I'll have the I'll have the resources to uh, to cope to ride the waves. Yeah, and you'll have more resources when you have more expansiveness. And I think that's how I personally live in the face of an existential crisis like the climate crisis. The fact that I've faced that fear has given me more energy to then choose and go out and fight for, you know, better climate policy in this country and so on. It's actually given me the energy. Right, right. Because I've I've got the expansiveness within my spirit to go and do that. Absolutely. And denying, it takes a lot of energy it subverts a lot of energy to spend it denying how things are yeah correct it takes a lot of cognitive energy well listen um oliver it's absolutely wonderful to dance in the nuances of all of this i love the fact that you have stuck to your guns you've never become a self-help guru that stands from the pulpit you basically join the rest of us in the muck and the mire of not knowing how it all goes but oh totally yeah having a deep conversation about it and uh thank you so much for your time and good luck tramping the moors um i'm a big fan i can i can very much vouch for the benefits of hiking as a way to um to understand all of this better great thank you so much it's been a pleasure so it kind of seems so wrong and yet so right to sum up oliver berkman's thesis you know the the anti-self-help time unmanager with a bunch of self-help hacks There are a bunch that he covered off, so I might just remind us of a few of them. He starts off by saying surrendering, like giving up on the insane idea that you can get everything done in a finite time on the planet. Um, He drills down a bit deeper and talks about getting cool with discomfort, you know, like treating it as an art form, which is something that I also believe is a really good resilience technique for just about everything. Also get cool with the joy of missing out. Treat your to-read pile or whatever to-do pile that you have as a river and not a bucket and pluck out the things that you might be curiously fascinated by rather than thinking you've got to get to the bottom of something. Or to treat it like a curious trip to the New York Library where you just pull out a book that intrigues you or a bookshop where the cover intrigues you and see what happens next. If pressed, Oliver would probably share these two techniques or or hacks, the Pomodoro technique, and for anyone interested, you can actually go online and download an app version of it. And then, of course, he shares his kind of to-do list, which is the one thing at a time to-do list. And I'd also say he seems to be adding hiking to his sort of self-help time management techniques list, which I would highly recommend. Anyway... Until next week, stay wild. See you soon.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details